Hey guys, welcome to Unleashed, where we are the resistance. Man, today, um, there's a guest we're going to be having on here that I've known for a number of years that I have the utmost uh, respect for. Um, his name is Don Higgins, and I'll, I'll bring him in here in just a second. And, and Don, when I get done with this, I, I didn't want to do too big of a bio because you got a huge bio with everything you've done. But let me kind of give you a little bit of background about Don. I mean, you're going to discover, I think you're going to love him. He's a no-nonsense guy um, who is in high demand. When I speak, you know, doing game dinners, they've all said, can you get a hold of Don Higgins if he hasn't already been there? Like, would you, we want to get him back or whatever, because he's just a wealth of knowledge. Um, he's got an extensive agricultural background. He's an author. Uh, he's an outdoor writer, I'm sure, if you uh, – Hunt the Whitetail Woods. Um, you, you've read his stuff. Um, he's a whitetail property consultant, a speaker, <clears throat> and a business owner. And that's just to name a few things. But here's one of the things, Don, that I love about you. You don't buy into all the smoke and mirrors. Um, you know, from what I know about you from, from our conversations, like at the ATA show, um, you're, you're really humble. You're very down to earth which I think surprises a lot of people when someone starts, you know, gaining, uh, you know, the, the platform that you have, you and I both know it can, it can begin to change people. And a lot of people will go ahead and say, Hey, I'm going to get all these sponsorships because I have the name. Now sponsorships means money. You don't go that route. You are the one that says they have to have integrity. And that's at the very top of your list. One of my favorite things that stood out to me from your bio it says um, that your integrity is important to you, and it's not for sale. Um, Don's a patriot. He's a passionate Christ follower, and Don knows dear, and he knows what he believes and stands firmly on that. So, buddy, good to have you here. Well, thanks for having me, Brent. I'll tell you, <laughs> you, you did a pretty good job describing me, so uh, I guess I'll have to slip you that $100 bill when this is over. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm guessing that $100 bill isn't going to come out of the shorts you're wearing right now. <laughs> no shorts for this country boy my legs haven't seen the sun in many many decades <laughs> don's got a podcast uh with his his co-host terry Pierce. it's called i'm um, chasing giants and on this week's episode as i was watching it this morning terry was was teasing you about you know not wearing shorts and uh that, that was just just funny sorry you guys a little inside joke there well yeah eric you've got something for us here yeah i got a couple questions here for uh, both you guys uh, these are both pertaining to archery. Um, Steve from Ohio wants to know what if you're left eye dominant, but you want to shoot archery, do you shoot lefty? So the guy's right handed, but he's left eye dominant. You know, what's weird. I'm right. eye dominant and I bow hunt right handed, but I shoot a gun left handed. Isn't that interesting? When I was a kid, I think my mom, I think I was left-handed when I was a kid growing up. My mom, you know, wanted me to be right-handed because back then it's like, hey, we want you to be a righty and everything. Right. And so I just kind of adapt. I play pool left-handed. Um, I mean, what's, what are your thoughts on that, Don? Well, you know, guys, of all the questions of, that could be asked of me, that is probably one of the worst ones because I am not an expert at archery whatsoever. I'm self-taught. Back decades ago when I was a kid, I had no one to show me the ropes. You know, I went to the local hardware store and got my first bow, and it was all self-taught. And I picked up a lot of bad habits along the way, still have them to this day. And I'm telling you, if you lined up every celebrity or whatever you want to call them, every person within the hunting industry and had an archery tournament or 3D tournament or whatever, 
I promise you I would be in the bottom 25% and maybe the bottom 10%. I'm just not that good of a shot. And I think that's one of the reasons I became a, a decent hunter is because I was such a poor shot. I had to get them deer close. So I had to really sharpen my hunting skills to make it happen. So when it comes to archery gear, I'm probably the last person you guys ought to be listening to. <laughs> well, but you know deer. That's, you know, what was it, Dr. Dave Samuel, um, you know, he's bow hunting Hall of Fame guy. Um, Dr. Dave, you know, that was one of the things about, what was his, what was his, uh, his column? Was it, um, man, I can't remember what it was. It was about knowing deer, but that's exactly what I would, I, I actually interviewed both of you guys. I think it was about 12 years ago. Don, I had read your book, uh, Hunting Trophy Whitetails in the Real World. Is that right? I think that was the first yep, one. that's yeah. it. And I mean, I immediately was drawn to that because it was kind of how you are. You're no nonsense. And you and I have both seen so much smoke and mirrors in the industry, and there's, there's too much of it to go into. But finding out what really works, you know, whether you were a you know, great you know, archer or not, um, you've been able to put it all together, which very few people have. Um, not in the way that you have. So, yeah, I, I don't know whether that, that question was, that's kind of all I can really think of. Yeah, I have no idea. So, yeah, whatever you guys think. What else you got? Okay. Uh, this is Ray from Edmonton, Canada. Hope it's, yeah. Is that right? Oh, there, yeah. I've driven through there. I, I know that. There's actually, I don't know if it's just Ray, but there's, there's several episodes being played there. So, this is good. Uh, he wants to know what are some general bow hunting strategies for whitetails. We're going to get into that. Um, we're going to we're going to touch on that stuff. Um, you know, one of the things that I would love to maybe Don, and if you've got some great ideas, man, you just throw them in here. But you know, a little bit later on, the whole game is not being seen, heard, or smelled. I mean, that's the whole thing. And this is one of the the, the areas where I know Don is an is, is an expert with this. So we'll answer that as we go into the podcast, if that's okay. Is that work where you done? That works great for me. Okay. Awesome. Well, man, we met, I can't remember what year it was at the ATA show, but when I interviewed you after reading that book, I had done a recording and I think I had, I had Charlie Alzheimer. I had you on there. I had Dr. Dave Samuel. Um, who else did I have? Eddie Clay, you know, Eddie Claypool? Uh, not real well, but I do know of him and I've spoken to him a couple of times. Amazing hunter. Uh, he's, and you see yep. him writing, is it Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine? I think I see a lot of his stuff in. Right. But we met at the ATA show, and, you know, we would go over and just kick back and have lunch and just talk about the real world, not about hunting so much, but just about life, you know, our families, what's happening in the world. Um, and it was just to, just to get to know you that way. I think it was so good rather than, you know, having this, you know, when you see some of the big names, um, you're not even really sure what to talk about. And it was a quiet respect that I had for you for years. And I had been with Whitetail University with Wade Nolan. You know, Wade passed about four years ago now. But I started with him with Whitetail University back in 2005, I think it was. And when you came, you know, really into the scene with that book, um, man, I was just drawn to, to a lot of what we're going to talk about here. So let's go ahead. We'll just start moving into some of this stuff. Um, you know, that first book that you had, I, I felt you didn't sell out to sponsors um, and all that, like I said, smoke and mirrors that were in the industry, but it was just really, it was, it was more than science, scientific. It was your real world approach to being successful. What you have 
tried and tested that you know from your experience, not from what someone else has told you. So give us a little bit of background about, you know, how you got into this place growing up, you know, your, um, where you grew up, I think was it, is it in Illinois? I know that. Right. Yeah. I grew up in a small town, central Illinois, 250 people. And my grandparents owned a small farm about three miles outside of town. And uh, it seemed like I spent as much time on their small farm as I did at home. And, you know, it had a creek going through it. So I would trap and I'd hunt squirrels and small game and such. We didn't have deer in our area back then, really. But, uh, you know, for me, it all comes down to my roots and my upbringing. You know, we were simple country people. I call myself a simple country boy to this day. And, uh, you know, uh, our word was worth something. A handshake meant more than a written contract. And you, you just, you didn't want to ever go back on your word. And, and you know, I, I really got into to writing based on the fact that I, I read everything that came out about deer hunting. Every magazine that hit the newsstands, I, I bought it. If it had anything, it had a single deer article in it, I was buying it and reading it. And what happened was I was taking that information that I would read to the woods and try to apply it, and it almost never worked. You know, the, the story sounded good in the magazines I'd read, but it just didn't work in the real world. And so at one point, it, I just realized that, hey, I think I, I know about as much as most of these guys writing these articles. Maybe it's time I try my hand at it. And that kind of got the ball rolling for me to start my writing career. And, you know, I was, I'd written for, I don't know, probably 10 years or so before I wrote the book that you referenced. And I had articles published in, you know, North American Whitetail, Deer and Deer Hunting, Peterson's Bow Hunting, just about, you know, every hunting magazine. I've been in it at least once or twice. Uh, I've had hundreds of articles published over the years, but it really started with the fact that what I was reading and trying to apply just never seemed to work. Tell us a little bit about, um, you know, everyone knows you now for shooting big bucks. I remember reading about how one of your goals was, you know, to shoot 150 inch, you know, deer early on. And then it just, it really progressed to now. I, I was watching the episode the other day and you were talking about letting, was it, was it Mel or Smokey that you kept letting go by? I think it was Mel. It was. Yeah, and you were you were driving back from somewhere, and you had seen that deer, and I think, if I remember, you can you can tell the story, but it was something about if that deer didn't have a bunch of points broken off, because you knew how big it was, this was the year, if you could if you could put it together. Yeah, so, you know, when I started, any deer was a trophy, and it was my target, and, and quickly it became bucks only, and then it became bucks with at least eight points, and then it would have to be bucks that scored at least the 125 Pope and Young minimum. And then 140, then 150, and so forth. And, and you know, it, it wasn't like it was one year to the next. Each one of those steps took me a few years. I mean, I wanted to get to the point where I could do that consistently, whatever that goal was, and then I would raise the bar. But, uh, you know, I got to the point where I felt that I, I could kill any buck that I hunted as long as I could get access to the property I needed to for that particular buck. And, uh, you know, in 2020, um, I, I shot my biggest buck ever. He actually ends up being the number six all-time typical with a bow. And uh, buck I called Mel after Mel Johnson, who holds the world record, 
when that buck was a yearling, he had a 10 point rack, a real small 10 point rack. And I thought, man, if that buck lives, he has a chance to be something special. Well, the very next year when he was two years old, I got pictures of this clean six by six typical and I didn't recognize him. And, and the thing of it is, I, I pretty much, I know the buck that I'm hunting. I mean, I, I learn them. I, I watch him grow up through trail cameras as well as actual sightings. And when that six by six buck came along, I, I couldn't picture what buck is that? You know, I just, he, from the previous year, I just couldn't picture which one he was. And then one day it dawned on me, that's that good five by five yearling from the year before. And I, I ran to my computer and I started comparing pictures in the rack from both years. And sure enough, it's definitely the same buck. He just exploded from a, you know, a little tiny 10 point rack as a yearling to a 160 inch two year old. And he, that was by far the best two year old I'd ever seen. And That's it, crazy. it still is to this day. Well, I would have never believed he was a two year old had I not known it was the same buck from the year before. And, and people see the pictures of the buck as a yearling, and they don't believe he's a yearling. Mm-hmm. But I know for a fact he is. If I would cover up his antlers and people just saw his body, they there would nobody would argue whatsoever. But he had such a nice rack for a yearling. But you know, um, moving on, he, he went from that. Well, the year he was the clean six by six, uh, two year old. That's when I named him Mel because you know Mel Johnson has the world record typical with a bow. And I thought, man, if that buck just lives five or six years old, he might challenge Mel Johnson's world record. And so I called him, started calling him Mel as a two-year-old. Well, the next year as a three-year-old, he blew up even more, over 200 inches. But he was pretty non-typical, through a lot of non-typical points. And, boy, I had a big decision to make, and I – I just couldn't bring myself to shoot a three-year-old, no matter how big he was. I, I knew if I shot him, I would spend the rest of my life looking at him on the wall, thinking, "What would he have been if I'd let him live?" Don, how many people? Year? How many people would even let you know something over a one fifty walk? And you're talking over a two hundred inch deer. How did you ever come to the decision to not? I mean, I, I just I can't even fathom that. Well, I've. You know, I've kind of mastered every step along the way that I described as I continually raise the bar. Today, I'm I'm really looking for world-class bucks, and they're pretty hard to find. I don't have one to hunt every season. In fact, if I can find one about every three years, I'm doing really good. But, you know, I remember the first time I let a 150 walk, and I, I didn't know at that time. There's a lot of guys letting 150s walk today. But back when I did it, I did not know of a single other hunter who'd ever let a 150-inch buck walk. And I, I just, I don't know, God has given me a kind of a different mindset that I don't need to impress anybody. And I found that I've learned more the years I don't shoot a deer than the years I do. Mm. I just, uh, those seasons I spend a lot more time in a tree um, observing if I'm not filling a tag. And, you know, my goal is always to end the season as a better hunter than when I started so that I can start the following season, you know, better than I did the season before. And, uh, you know, I, I got to the point where the, the kill was literally not nearly as important to me as the chase. And, and it's the hunt. And, and I, I, I've shot enough of my target bucks that I know once I shoot that buck, 
it's over. And then I'm on a three-year search for the next one. And that's really kind of the down point of that cycle, if you will. It's when you've found a world-class buck and you're chasing him, that's the fun for me, getting those trail camera pictures, you know, spotting him in velvet coming out on a soybean field or whatever. I get such a thrill out of that that I don't really need to put an arrow in one anymore because, you know, I, I don't want this to sound arrogant because I, I don't mean it that way at all, but I've tagged way more than my fair share of giants, and one more is not going to – it's it's not going to change my reputation among other hunters. It's not going to change how I feel about myself. Um, it's just not going to change me. So the need to kill another giant is is not there. Now the desire is there, but the need is not there. You know, one of the things that I talk about on here is identity and where our worth and value comes from, and that makes total sense because when you're not getting your worth and value from all the people in the hunting industry because of you know how many big bucks you've shot. It doesn't, it doesn't press you to try to go and, and kill the next, you know, 180, 190 because you're not out there to impress anybody. It's, it's, it's your game. This is what you're doing is for you. It's your passion. Um, and you can stay as patient as you want to because you're not trying to get anybody else's good opinion of you. I mean, that's, it, it just really goes along with a lot of what we talk about on here. Um, no, one of the funny things, and if you guys, if you want to see, he's, he shot an, an amazing video on Mel. Um, it's on the it's on chasing giants, but what was I don't remember if there was an, was there an episode number? Or was it just about Mel? Uh, it's on the chasing giants with Higgins Outdoors YouTube channel. Um, you, you can just go through the hunts, and I forget the, the title of it, but uh, yeah, I've watched it I a couple it, of I times. I think it's just simply Mel. I think I think it is, and one of the things that I think it'd be interesting for the viewers out there to know when 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 Don finally took this buck you had covid yep <laughs> and so here's the one of the funniest things i don't mean to give this away but when when you shot mel and you, and you knew he'd gone down you know you hit him through the vitals and you heard him crash did you run right over and see mel <laughs> no i actually went back to the house and called my grandsons i wanted my grandson and they live in indiana so they live two hours away I wanted them boys to be with me when I walked up on him because I knew that there was probably very little chance that they would ever get a, get a chance to walk up on a 200-inch buck with their grandpa in their life. And so you went to the nap. Get, get that opportunity, and I wanted to share it with them. So you went and took yeah, a nap I, I, would, I did. And uh, <laughs> you know that video that we're referencing here, um, it's got almost 2 million views today. And I get so many, it was professionally done, not by myself, but by Steve Shields, a good friend of mine. And I'm telling you, he did a fantastic job on, I didn't give him much to work with being a simple country boy. I'm not, uh, you know, Mr. Photogenic or anything like that. Mr. Charisma, get on the camera. And he took what little I gave him to work with, and he turned it into a masterpiece. It's excellent. It's uh, it's guys, you got to go and 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 look that up. It's it's an amazing video. It was really well done. And then so Smokey, now what year did you take Smokey? That would have been twenty seventeen. And he had was it twenty points? Uh no, he he only had uh, thirteen. What was the one I'm thinking? Or was that? Well, I shot one in t 2004 that had 20 points. That's what I'm think I'm remembering. Yep. And that one scored. What, was it? Was it 214? 
Yeah, it was 214. Yeah, man. So how many over 200 now have you taken? Uh, three. And this is this is not, you know, this is not high fence stuff that you're doing. No. And so No, it's they're wild never since the word. So you know, when I was a kid, my dad would take me hunting, and I, I talked about this, I think, in a couple episodes ago. My dad knew nothing about hunting at all. You know, he wanted to be with me, which now I, I value that. I go back and go, you know what? He didn't care anything about hunting, but he wanted to be with me. But I'll never forget mm-hmm. the first time we went out. He went back in the house and came out, and I could smell something. I said, Dad, what is that? And he says, well, I put on Old Spice. He was a school teacher. We saw nothing <laughs> that whole day. Yeah. Because that's what he did. You know, he just went in and put on Old Spice. He didn't know anything about it. But his passion to be with me just helped fuel my fire, you know, for whitetails. So let's, right. let's touch on something for a minute. So I love talking about, you know, the three things in the game is don't be seen, heard, or smelled. Um, obviously don't put on old spice, but going back to the don't be seen part, I've, I've heard you on a lot of your podcasts, you know, talk about, you know, entrance and exit, um, you know, all those different things. Touch on the, on the scene part of that, if you would. Well, you know, I, I think, most deer hunters don't realize it, but most of the time they've run their hunt before they ever climb into their stand. They, they've alerted the deer in their hunting areas that they are there and before they ever get into that tree. And, you know, the deer either sees them, smells them, or hears them. So, you know, access or entrance to your stand location is very critical for success. And I don't think most deer hunters recognize just how critical it is. Because if that deer sees, smells, or hears you before you get there, it's over. He, he's not going to be walking past your stand. And I know you do trail cams a lot. So, like, a lot of guys out there are doing them, but they're, like, they're going back every month and they're accessing. Now they have, you know, the um, you can do them through your cell phone. But what are you, because I've heard you talk about this, but touch a little bit on pressuring your property. Well, I... I also use my, my cameras different than most hunters. And I think most hunters are putting those cameras out there and they're running back and checking them on a fairly regular basis. And they're looking for that buck to do something that they can immediately take advantage of. And so they go, they pull their card, they come home, they throw it in the computer and, oh man, my target buck has come by and in daylight hours, it's time to start hunting. Well, no, you're already late to the game. And the time to start hunting was right there before he started moving in daylight. And so then they go back and, you know, they're probably taking a stand in with them and cutting, shooting lanes and, and they're bumping the deer off. Well, I use my trail cameras to gather annual data. So if I see a buck or get a picture of a buck at a particular location at a whatever date, I can pretty much figure that that buck is going to be in that area the same date the following year. And it's really uncanny how a mature buck has an annual pattern. And I'm putting that pattern together years before I hunt that deer. And in some cases, four or five years. There's one buck that I watched for six years, and I went in and I killed him the first morning I hunted for him when he was six and a half years old. Um, But it's that annual day day. I'm not – when that buck is going to move past my stand – that stand has been in place for at least months, and in some cases a couple of years, just waiting for that prime opportunity. And then when that comes along, you know, I'm getting in there, and it's my first trip in. I didn't have to go in and hang a stand. I didn't have to go in and hang trail cameras. I just know the buck's still alive. He's going to be doing this and that on these dates or close to it. 
And when the conditions are right, I go in and hunt him. How, like with your height on your deer stands, um, and are you doing all the above, you know, ladder stands, lock-ons, climbers, or do you kind of stick with one? And what height are you typically going at? I've got every kind of stand ever known to man, including enclosed elevated blinds. But uh, you know, the height varies by the tree. I think it's way more important to be hit in that tree. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got stands that I can literally almost reach up and touch the platform. So they're, they're maybe eight foot off the ground in real thick, brushy trees. And also brushy terrain where you don't want to get too high or you just lose all your, your vision. And then I've got other stands that are 30 feet maybe 35 feet even high so it just it varies greatly by the tree more than anything i don't know about 35 feet buddy i don't think i could do that <laughs> i mean you know i was i, I got, don't have many like that oh i got certified as a tree stand safety instructor back in 2007 i think it was you know we had to do investigations and different things with guys and there was a guy in um uh, louisiana who, who uh he was cajun background and he had a tree stand 60 feet off the ground and he, he obviously he fell and he passed away. No safety harness. I still to this day I cannot even believe someone wasn't wearing a safety harness up there. But sixty feel—that's nuts. But I, I mean, yeah, one of the well, things. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say I don't have very many that even are thirty feet today. But I have in the past had a lot of them over thirty feet. The older I get, the more. Uh, the more I love the ground and stay close to it. So do you play the thermals into the height of your tree stand for morning and evening hunts? Do you take that into consideration or more just being covered up and play the wind? Uh, it's more about playing the wind than anything. The terrain that I'm hunting is fairly flat. I don't have big hills, so the thermals don't come into play near as much. Although I do understand that, you know, you get 20 feet up in a, in a tree stand and it, it affects, there, there's effect from the thermals as well. I mean, a lot of guys will say, you know, they swear a certain scent control product works because they had deer downwind of them and they didn't right. smell them. Well, you know, my explanation is pretty simple. You know, there's days when, you know, you can see your neighbor's burning his leaves or something and that smoke is going straight up in the air. And there's other days when that smoke is, is hanging down on the ground and your scent is doing the same thing. There's days where you can be in your tree and the deer can be straight downwind of you and your scent's going right over the top of them. One of the companies that, that uh, you know, I've followed, and I actually, that's how we met. I was working for them at the ATA show was a company that's called Atsco. And this isn't a, I'm not trying to do a plug here, but the research, and, and I, again, I love them all. And I think they make great products, but the research in, in dead skin cells, you know, when we're exfoliating, you know, the, like with a, with a glove, you know, getting those dead skin cells off, you know, that, respiring of that specific body odor that we have you know it's funny in whitetails the, the the amount of receptors that they have compared to a human is is what is it they say that a whitetail smells up to ten thousand times better um you know than we do and i always say it's like this when a when a you walk into grandma's house at thanksgiving right and you can just smell this amazing meal but a whitetail walks in there he doesn't smell an amazing meal he can tell you every single thing it's cooking. That's sweet potato pie, you know, that's turkey, that's dressing, That because he can identify everything. And so, you know, a lot of the smoke and mirrors that I, I discovered early on was a lot of these companies that promise you, you know, all these different things, you know, whether it was a cover scent or whatever it was, um, he smells it. He goes, that's raccoon urine, that's fox urine. Uh, you hung your stuff outside of a smoke, you know, a wood stove, and that's a human scent. 
he can identify every single one of those. So I don't buy a whole lot into, you know, the whole game with all the cover scent stuff. But I do love the uh, the camo that you were wearing in that video. Who who makes that? Oh, uh, was that the Osseo camo? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Osseo. I love great the, guy uh, too, uh, Joe Miles, a great hunter out of South Carolina, came up with that camo pattern. Oh, I, when you were standing in the one tree, I think it's when you shot Mel. And I, I was looking at that camo, and I went, man, I really like that camo. I mean, yeah, I love the that, pattern. Now, that would have been a different camo. Which one was, I'm trying um, to think what, or maybe it was Smokey. I can't remember which one it was. But, uh, it was probably it was probably Mel, I'm guessing. But I love it. And one of the things I'm always looking for in camo, and I don't know how you feel about this. I don't know that I've heard the episode with you talking about it or not, but like with UB dyes and brighteners, what's your take on that? Well, I think there's definitely something to it. Um, it's, you know, there, there's a lot of things that I think we, we understand that it has some effect. We just don't fully realize what effect and, it's kind of like the red moon. I get questions about the moon phases all the time and how that affects deer movement. I, I do believe there's something to it, but I, I'm not knowledgeable enough to put my finger on exactly what it is. And I think it's the same way with these UV brighteners. And we don't know, or I, I personally don't know specifically how a, a deer's eyes work. I know that they can pick up movement very, very easy. And yet there's times where you can stand still and they'll almost walk right by you at a few feet. So, uh, you know, one of the long winded way of saying, I, I don't know how yeah, a deer's eyes work. We did. I did some experimenting just like you, you said, I remember when you got some scent control stuff in someone had sent you some things and you said, I'm going to try them and these things. I'll let you know what I think. I did some testing with, with UV on blaze orange and I had, um, a blaze orange vest I went out during a gun season back in Pennsylvania when I was living back there years ago. And, man, I'm telling you, I was at the edge of the field, and they saw me. And one of the things that, you know, I think it's the University of Georgia did the study on all this stuff, that behavioral research, um, that deer do absolutely see ultraviolet-powered, um, what do they call them, optical brighteners, way better than we do. But they only see in two colors, according to their research, and that was blue and yellow. And they did some kind of an experiment with food to get them to come. And that's how they were discovering all this stuff. But I had these deer spot me, or blowing, stomping, and I had the wind in my favor. And then someone had done a drive. We were doing an experiment. And I, was, I went into the woods, and I put on a different blaze orange vest that was um, UV dead. We treated it to get the UV out of it. And those deer about ran me over. I had no clue I was standing there. So I know I've had it happen, like being up in a tree stand and you see that maternal doe walking through and all of a sudden you didn't move, the wind's right, and all of a sudden she just pops her head and looks right at you. And I mean, I understand it's their bedroom. They know everything that should or shouldn't be in a certain area. But I think there is, you know, something something to that. But let's move on to the, the herd part. You know, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, approaching the stand. And now you had, what was your sponsor that was the bike that you had getting in and out quietly to your stand? Uh, quiet cat. Yes. Talk a little bit about, you know, not being heard. Well, I mean, a mature buck is so in tune with his surroundings that, you know, he knows the difference between a squirrel running through the leaves and, you know, another deer coming through the leaves and a human coming through the leaves or whatever. It's, you just, it, it does you no good to address everything else and not address the sound that you make. 
So you can be totally scent free. You can be camoed up, but if you make too much sound getting to your stand or while you're in your stand, the hunt's over. A mature buck is just not going to come and investigate like a doe a lot of times will. You know, if she sees you move, she's not she's not leaving until she figures it out. She'll circle around downwind, and then when she gets your scent, she'll stomp and blow and tell everybody. A mature buck sees something that he don't like. He, he just turns and walks away. So they're just totally different. The mature buck's a totally different animal. And I think that's another thing that probably holds a lot of deer hunters back is I think they're too successful at hunting other deer that it's really hard for them to change their tactics to hunt older mature bucks. Do you move it's, your, do you move your trail cameras around a lot with, I mean, or do you have multiples now, but I was, I would like trying to find it. I'm trying to remember. It's been a while since I read that first book of yours but trying to understand their patterns through each season of the year. And you said something, and I do remember this, that a you know mature monster buck, um, he finds that place that he knows nobody else is going to pressure. And, and one of the, the goals is to try to find that. Oh, yeah. I, I believe without any doubt that every mature buck alive today has a sanctuary, a place where he goes when the heat's on. If he didn't, he would have never made it to maturity. Someone would have, the odds would have caught up with him. His luck would have ran out and someone would have shot him. But, and I don't think that these bucks are smarter than other bucks. I think a lot of it is luck. I think when they're young and they're dispersing, you know, those yearling bucks dispersing from their birth area to find the new home range, I think some of them just get lucky and they, they settle into a, a sanctuary area maybe where there's no hunting allowed, you know, a, whether it be a small property or a big property, and they get to older age through luck more than anything. But once they do get to older age, they have figured out, you know, where they're safe and where they're not. They know where they encounter humans. They know where they encounter human scent. And they just avoid those areas during daylight hours. I had one guy come up and he was talking to me about, you know, he rakes the leaves to all of his stands from about 75 yards out. I just don't do that. Um, it, to me, it just feels like any disturbance that I'm doing in the forest like that, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a sign. It's, you know, it's a, Hey, humans been here, but I don't know whether, I mean, I've had guys say they mow, you know, one path through a field, which, um, so they can get quietly and not be seen to their stand and those kind of things. But yeah, I think the approach to the, to the stand is about as important as any, I'll take a turkey call with me. I hunt in Southern Indiana. And I know that when I'm walking, I try not to walk in a way that is going to sound like a human walking. And I'll even scratch, the, you know, the ground with my foot a little bit and with my mouth call and I'll be talking a little bit. And sometimes even if I get up in my stand, if I make a little bit of a sound, I'll take my hat off and I'll smack it on my leg and do like a fly down, you know, like, like there's a turkey down there. I've actually seen uh-huh. doe. Um, I made a noise one time and there were three, it was, a, it was two maternals and a yearling. And when I was up in there and I did that, I watched them at first. They were like perking up. And then I did that little fly down thing. Pretty soon they stood up tails. You know, they were just they were wagging their tails, feeding. They were, they were good, but well, yeah, I, but they pay attention big time. They're in tune to their surroundings. No doubt about it. What about, let's go to, let's go to the last one. We talked about not being seen, not being heard. What about not being smelled? Cause you are probably so well known for saying you got to play the wind. Yeah, you know, I have tried every single gimmick that that there is or product. Maybe I shouldn't call them gimmicks. 
because I do believe most of them work to some degree. Um, 30 years ago, when I went to the woods, I, I did it all. Um, I mean, I took a shower before I went. I even took the chlorophyll tablets for a month right. before season opened. All, all my gear was kept in a tote, plastic tote. I changed my clothes outside my vehicle when I got to my hunting area. I sprayed down. I, I did everything. I even carried a bottle to pee in. Well, you know, one day I, I looked at that pee bottle in my stand, and I thought, this thing has got to stink. There's just no way it can't. <laughs> been peeing in this bottle every day of hunting season and we're two months in and i started by throwing that thing away i thought i'm going to just try peeing out of my stand seeing what happens and you know the this is this is almost a god thing the first, the next time i went hunting i peed out of my stand i'm telling you brent it wasn't five minutes later an eight point buck comes by sticks his nose right where i peed and started eating the grass well <laughs> I've been peeing out of my stand ever since, and I slowly gave up every other, you know, scent elimination product that I ever used. And it, it's all about the wind. It, it, and here's the other thing is, you know, everybody thinks that the wind has to be right for you to be successful. And in reality, the wind needs to be right for that mature buck. And you need to figure out how you can give him the wind he needs to be comfortable up on his feet moving and yet still not be able to smell you where are you going to have your stand along that route that he's comfortable moving because if he's not comfortable with the wind you could have the wind 100 percent in your favor yeah he's not going to smell you but he's also not walking by because he's not comfortable with that wind and once i've started figuring that out then my success just skyrocketed what do you do in the mornings? I know early October, I've heard you talk about it. You're not a big morning hunter in early October, neither am I. Um, it just, it's a lot of time spent. It's a lot of making noise and, and smells in the woods. And I, I stay away from that. Um, but, sorry, I, I'm hearing a little bit of noise going on outside the studio here. So sorry about that. I got distracted for a second. But um, back to what we were talking. Oh, so when you're going in in the mornings, do you find yourself, um, do you go in, like how long, before daylight or are you one of these hunters that waits till they get back to their beds and they and go get get in and then wait to get in when they come out feeding no i like to get in early um but i don't want to get in too early i don't want to sit there in the dark for an hour so i try to get in there about say on average 20 minutes before shooting light yeah that's I know guys are going an hour before, and I'm like, I don't want to be sitting up there freezing and everything else for the next hour. But um, right. funny, when I was a kid growing up, you know, we would always, my dad, we would go out. I told you he wasn't much of a hunter. And uh, there, was a, there was a family with us, and we were out hunting together, another father and son. And he went in, I, I don't know, it was like some crazy early hour. And he was in there so long, he had to go to the bathroom. And he told his dad, he goes, Dad, I got to do a number two. His dad said, well, listen, go over there. He said, dig a hole. And he's with your heel. And he had, remember those big, it looked like a big carrot, the big, uh, like the big jumpsuit looking, you know, blaze orange stuff. And yeah. he went over and his dad said, now make sure you covered up really well. You know, you don't want all that smell going on. So he goes over and he comes back to his dad and they're standing there. And his dad goes, are you sure you didn't like step in it or something? He said, no. He says, I, I, I stayed away from everything. He says, I was actually leaning up against a tree. And he says, I think everything was good. And he says, man, you stink. And he kid pulled the hood up over his head. 
and you can figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> to this I knew day, where that one was going. <laughs> he still has a nickname to this day. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I bet he's not the only one that's happened to over the years. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah. We'll just keep it there. You know, you were going back to the to like pee bottles and stuff. I think most guys do take that with them. But we discovered we did some some testing with scrapes. And we were putting different things in scra- scrapes and to see how it affect them. It had no effect. Right. None at all. We put WD-40. We were doing all kinds of different things to see what the difference was. They didn't care. And so it's probably been maybe five or six years now. I'm the same way now. It's like, you know what? I mean, I don't, I don't usually have to go. Yeah, I can be up there five, six hours and be fine. But I agree. I totally agree. What a waste. And you're right. That bottle probably smells worse than anything else by now. Yep. Um, broadheads. T- touch on that real quick. Um, fixed or mechanical? What's your, what's your opinion? Uh, it's got to be fixed. Yeah, I, I knew you were going to say that already. I just had to put it out there. Yeah. I didn't want to run with it too hard. I might run off a few listeners, but <laughs> I just see the mechanical as a chance that doesn't need to be taken. And well, I think there's, I mean, the the benefit when I think about like an expandable is, you know, if you make a, God forbid you make a bad shot, it's happened to everybody, and say you hit him back, you have a little bigger of a cutting diameter, you're still going to have to wait that deer out six, eight hours, you know, if you get a liver hitter back in the gut or whatever until that deer expires. But when it comes to like bone, um, you know, I think it, it doesn't, you know, if you hit a deer in the vitals, it doesn't matter if you have a, a two inch cut broadhead or whether you've got, an, you know, an inch cut. You know, if you hit them the way you should hit them, they're going to expire. Um, Long heart shot, you know, they're going to both be down within 100 yards. And that's the one nice thing I do like about fixed is you don't have a problem. Like if you catch one of those blades on an expandable on a little branch, it can, you know, open it prematurely and and redirect the path of that arrow. Um, But, yeah, I I, I mean, I I honestly use both depending upon where I'm hunting. But, yeah, there's no doubt that fixed broadheads are, are probably a little stronger. Oh, let's see here. Let's get into something that I wanted to talk to you about. We'll, we'll finish. We'll, we'll bring God into this in just a minute. But you said at the beginning of this podcast, you know, you grew up in a small town. You're just a, like a country boy. And, um, you know, whenever I see you posting, you know, on social media posts, you don't really hold back. But you're also not trying to rub someone's nose in something. But you're very passionate about this country. You're very passionate about God. You're very passionate about, like you just said earlier, about your kids waiting a couple hours for them to get there so you could take them in to see the deer. So I know family means an incredible amount to you. But we both grew up in the 1960s. And the the world has changed an incredible amount. And, you know, I'm just kind of wondering, I guess one of my questions would be, you know, is God in what's happening in this country right now? Now, where is he in all that? You know, what's our part? Well, it's interesting that we're having this conversation today because one of the things that that I decided I was going to do this summer was I'm going to read the New Testament again because uh, I believe that we're probably in the end times. And I want to understand the book of Revelation better, but I didn't want to go right to Revelation. I wanted to start at the beginning of the New Testament and read it all. And then when I got to Revelation, I'm going to really slow down and take a chapter at a time and maybe even get a, you know, some kind of study material to go along with it. 
But I, I recently read Romans 13, and Romans 13 talks about, and it was so profound that I, my wife and I had a, a, a long discussion about it afterwards. That it, it says very clearly that every government that's in power, God put them there. And, you know, it talks about, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, talk, pay your taxes. And, well, we had a real discussion about that one because obviously as Christians, we don't agree with everything our government's doing with our money, with our tax dollars. And, you know, when they're doing things like supporting abortions through Planned Parenthood and, and things like that, it's really tough for me as a Christian to to want to pay my taxes and to not want to look for ways to, to pay less. Right. And that was a real eye opener for me at Romans chapter 13. So if anybody's listening, they're having the same issues that I've had. I, I love my country, but I despise my government. And I don't think you've got to look too hard to see that, this world today and this country in particular, there's a battle of good and evil happening. There's yeah. a spiritual battle happening right before our eyes. And the only way that you can not see it is to not have any knowledge whatsoever uh, of scripture or the Bible. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I could, I could fill about four podcasts with this one topic. Brand. I know, you I, really I know you could. <laughs> and you know what? And, you know, and I, I'm the one that brought this you didn't, excuse me, <clears throat> you didn't bring this up. I did. And it's because God's been convicting me, to be honest with you, Don, because here's what I've, I've always been, and, and I'll continue to be this to a degree, is, you know, my, my role isn't to um, try to convince someone, for instance, how to vote. My job is to promote God, promote Scripture, live my life in accordance. So when people see that, they can see the difference between right and wrong, and I can build a trust with them. So now I have a platform to speak into their life. And so I, mm -hmm. I, I want them to know God, and I really believe that if they know God, the Holy Spirit will lead them of what they need to do. Well, here's what's happened. You know, this podcast is called Unleashed, and the reason I made it Unleashed is because I want to see men free. I want men to understand that their identity is in Christ alone, not from the biggest deer they've shot, not from what kind of car they drive, how much money they have, what their wife looks like, how big their muscles are. I want it to be nothing except that I want them to know that your identity, your one true identity, comes because the God of the universe, if you're a believer, is inside of you. And because of that, you have everything you will ever need in him. So whatever he's called you to do, you can do it fearlessly because he's got this no matter what. Well, then when I was looking for, you know, like the subtitle, which is We Are the Resistance, you know, I was working with a guy, um, Nate Sauter, who played uh, with the New England Patriots. He was on, I think, three of their Super Bowl teams. He just retired this past year. But he's, anyhow, he was a friend, and we were having a conversation, texting back and forth. And there was something about the We Are the Resistance came up. And I said, can I steal that? <laughs> and he says, I'm not using it. Do what, do what you want with it. Well, I sat on it for a while. And as I began to keep reading those words, we are the resistance, God started saying to me, what does that mean to you? Well, you're, if you're going to use that phrase, it has to mean something rather than it being a catchy little, you know, phrase. And he said, and, and if it does mean something to you, what are you willing to do with that? And I said, okay, God, you know, it's like search me and know me. I want to know what's going on here. And, you know, I, growing up in the 1960s, you know, I could take my pocket knife to school. 
I had right. in high school, I had my, my gun rack in the back of my truck and I could have my rifle hang. My doors weren't locked. Our house doors weren't locked. And we've seen this country change. You know, the whole thing, I, I, and I've said this and I, I think you're right there with me. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. And when you take God out of the school system, you've just slaughtered morality. And then you take the fathers out of homes and, and all kinds of things that we've been seeing happening. Um, I, I, I did an episode here just recently where I was talking about they had killed these, these elephants over in Africa, the older bulls. And what ended up happening was the younger bulls, when they came into what's called must, when their testosterone is, is kicking up, they were going around and they were killing rhinos because they weren't being mentored. And that's a lot of what we're seeing. A lot of the young people right now, whether it's school shootings or the violence or all these things going on, is because you take God away from this stuff and you're left up to your own devices. You're left without a compass being God, you know, pointing true north. And, I, and I, Don, I really believe this. We are seeing right now in this country, and you and I both, when we go and we speak for men's events, there's a fire that's lighting. When I went down to Asbury, uh, when the, the revival was happening earlier this year, and I, I stood in line for seven hours to get in there to, to be a part of that. But mostly what happened for me was outside of the building with all these people and the conversations I was having. They were praying for one another. Um, there were healings happening. They were singing praise and worship. There was no... Um, racial divides. It was all about we're here because the God of the universe made us and we're all going to be together someday as it is. But this voice of the we are the resistance began to stir in me because what we saw growing up, freely being able to go to church, freely being able to you know speak in our speech and talk about things that, that we really believed in, we're now being seeing persecution coming. because We talked about COVID earlier. You had COVID. I had COVID. But the whole vaccination thing, it divided families. It divided our nation, you know, whether you're going to be vaccinated, whether you're going to be unvaccinated. And then we've seen so many other things happening with, you know, commercials we're seeing on television that are really going against the core of most people in this country. But it seems like the less we speak up, the more ground evil gains. And so God convicted me. He said, Brent, are you willing to listen to me? Are you willing to follow me? Are you willing to be a voice? And here's the thing. God lo- it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, or what you've done. God loves you desperately. That's why he gave his son for you. He took the bullet for you because he loves you so much. But we're also mm-hmm. called to stand against the evil one. And, Don, I've, I haven't brought anything up like this in any of my podcasts at this point. But when God brought you into my mind to have you on the podcast, I know how passionate you are about this. And anyway, if you, I mean, gosh, what's that song that it was a Jason Aldean's got out right now that try that in a small town. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all based on, listen, we are family. We love one another. We are willing to die for what we believe in, but it just seems like that voice is getting silenced and people are just walking around blind. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you've thrown out so much here. My mind's been racing for the last couple minutes. <laughs> I can take this conversation 50 different directions, but I guess to start with, you know, you talked about that phrase unleashed. Um, when I started the chasing giants podcast, I, and I only recently, and like in the last 30 days have shared this with Terry, my co-host, you know, chasing giants was, it, it had a double meaning for me. It was chasing giant whitetails, but also I think, 
most of us at some point in our life have been chasing a demon or a demon's been chasing us. You, you know, we're, we, we've all had that vice, whatever it may be, alcohol, drugs, women, you name it. At some point, most of us have faced something and it's that giant that was chasing us. And it, it's time to, you know, turn the tables yes. and start chasing it. Um, I mean, I think the problem with this country is not our schools. I think it, or it didn't start there anyway. I think it started in our homes, you know, back when you and I were kids on a, a Sunday, 90% plus of businesses were closed. Families went to church together on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon. You'd visit grandparents or whatever. And today that doesn't happen at all. I mean, very, very small percentage of people. And it, and the failure started in the home. It didn't start with the government. It didn't start at school. It started in our home. And one of the things that I've tried to use the Chasing Giants podcast for is to encourage young men to, you know, stand up and, and take care of their obligations. The Bible is very clear that the man is the head of the family and he's got certain obligations. Mm -hmm. And I've also got a video out on YouTube where I did a, a a seminar at a church in Effingham, Illinois. It's only about 20, 25 minutes long. Somebody wants to watch it. But my message was, um, you know, watch your purpose. God put us here and we each have a purpose. And maybe your purpose is just to raise your kids to be good people. I mean, I, my parents, I promise you, had no idea what I was going to do with my life. They had no idea that one day I would stand in front of crowds of uh, more than a thousand people at times and, and, you know, share the gospel with them. Or they had no idea that one day I, I would have a podcast with, you know, I don't know, probably 20,000 or so people a week listen to. They had no idea. But the only reason that I can do that today is because of the foundation my parents set, you know, 60 years ago. And, a person's purpose could just be to raise that child to have the values that they need to make a difference in this world down the road decades from now. Yep. And uh, I think it's a really powerful message. I share it on my social media most years right before hunting season because I encourage deer hunters to, to listen to that message. And as they're sitting in their stand that fall, you know, we've all got plenty of time to sit there and, and think about different things. They need to think about what their purpose is in life. Why did God put them here? You know, I could continue taking this in a slightly different direction. I've had people tell me that they believe, and I thought this myself long before it happened, long before anybody else said it, that, that some of my deer hunting success has been almost unbelievable. About, a good example is in 2017, I shot uh, my second 200-inch buck smoking, and then on the very next hunt, the very next time I went to the woods, I shot a 193-inch buck. It was my number two buck that I year. I remember that. So 400 inches of antler I shot on back-to-back -back hunts. It was even covered by Fox News. I saw that. That's and how I remember that, it. Yeah. So, you know, I've had people suggest to me that the only way to explain my success is that God is, is using He's almost my guide, my outfitter, mm -hmm. if you will. And he likes what I'm doing with my platform, and he wants people to have their eyes on me so that I can share the message. And 
I was afraid. I had that thought myself, and I was afraid to say it. And then I've had people say it to me that they they've watched from afar and they've noticed it themselves. And I, there's just no way. Some of the things. I mean, we talked about me passing up a buck that scored over 200 inches, Mel. There's no way I could have ever dreamed that was going to happen. And another message that I've always got for young people is to dream big because it doesn't matter how big you dream, that dream, as as wild as you can imagine, God's reality is even bigger. And I'm living proof of that. There is no way on this earth that I could have possibly dreamed that I would accomplish some of the things that I have. And and that's that's all all the glory goes to him because it's not me. I, I just I was kind of the the vehicle, if you will, or, or the the messenger that that he's allowed. And you know the man, I, I can just keep going. The, Don't, do, do the other thing is in the oh, go, in the no. Bible. Go ahead. I was just saying in the Bible, God used. He doesn't use the the mightiest, the the wealthiest, the kings and the queens. He uses the least likely. Um, and, and that's me. I mean, I'm telling you, Brian, if you would go back to the kids that were in my high school class, I went to a small school about, there was about 40 in my graduating class. I'm telling you, I was the kid that was voted the most likely to end up in jail. <laughs> I mean, I was in trouble all the time as a kid. There is absolutely no way. And, and to think that I would somehow have a platform that I'd be using for God, that, that was just totally unfathomable. Nobody in my class would have ever, ever believed that if you'd have told them that when I graduated. And God can do amazing things with the most unlikely people, and I'm just living proof of it. Do, do me a favor. We're going to be wrapping up here in a second, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about your business because when I saw you at the ATA after you know things had really picked up after shooting some of these big bucks and your seed company was taken off. I saw you and I walked over and you said, buddy, it, it's going nuts. I mean, things have just exploded almost overnight. And just talk a little bit about your, your company with, with real world wildlife products and just kind of let the listener know maybe, you know, who you are. I, we know what you represent and uh, yeah, just tell them a little bit about yeah. that. Well, you know, my, with my passion for whitetails and, and land management, habitat management, um, 15 years ago, I started a company called Real World Wildlife Products, and it, it's almost a story in itself. And I had a partner, a, a really great guy, Christian guy, but 10 years in, he decided that we needed to part ways, and uh, we had never had issues, but the company got big enough that where we could quit our jobs and do this full time. And, and I think the stress of it was too much for him to handle. And he decided for whatever reason that one of us had to go. And I, I thought it was going to be me going. I, I, I thought that uh, I've got so much going on, no way I can run this company by myself. And we struggled for about six months. I mean, it was terrible, terrible situation. And, Finally, the tables turned to where I became the buyer and bought him out. And uh, I'm telling you, the night, and, and I'd been six months or so, I hadn't slept you know, a night. But during that time, you know, my wife and I prayed for my partner and his family and his kids on a regular basis almost every night when we went to bed. And, and, and the prayer was sincere. You know, we, we really cared about these people. They'd become 
great friends of ours, and we just couldn't understand why any situation couldn't be worked through. Well, I ended up buying him out, and the day that we signed that contract um, for for me to purchase him out, I didn't purchase at all. There's another person that came in and purchased some too, but I became the majority owner where it had been 50-50. But that night I slept like a baby for the first time. And it was almost like God confirming that the reason it had been so tough for six months was God wanted me to have that company. He had plans. And I recognized that. And I decided that, you know, we'd talked about it before we, we'd done good things before and, but we really, really became at that point a Christian-based company. The young man that had bought in to the company with me was Wes Delks. And I don't know, you, you should have Wes Delks on because I'm telling you, this young man came in, a Christian young man. He held my feet to the fire as a Christian. Mm. It's like, and it was almost reverse roles because he's young enough to be my son. But yet there was times that he, he was, he had the more mature stance on certain issues and uh we just from from that point on you know we wanted to be a company that not only talked a good talk but we wanted to follow it up i mean the fact that we do things like support your ministry um we we pay tithe on everything we make and every person that we deal with whether it be a customer or a vendor gets treated with the utmost respect by just the way we would want to be treated. Uh, we strive for long-term relationships with everybody, a customer or a vendor. Um, we, we just, we want to use our company the same way I use my platform to glorify God and all that we do. And when we turn that corner and, and we weren't a bad company before we, we were doing things right, but we took it to the next level. And when we did, God took it to the next level. And uh, to this day, I'm always mindful of where my blessings come from. I know it's not me making these things happen. You know, when, so, when we started working together, just, just a little over a year ago now, when I got a hold of Terry Peer, um, your co-host with Chasing Giants, you know, I was, you know, being at, I, I'm a speaker and do a lot of game dinners, and I was, you know, looking for sponsorships and different things and people I believed in. Terry said to me, he goes, Brandy goes, I don't care if you put these brochures out at the table or even talk about us. He said, we believe in you and we want to support you. We know what God has done by us supporting other people. And we're all about helping other people's ministry. That spoke everything I needed to hear. At the very beginning, when you said your integrity is not for sale, you know, that's the people that I know about, you know, in your company, they're like that. And guys, if you're if you're listening to you know what we're talking about with this, this seed company and everything right now, um, Don, what's the website on that? It's realworldwildlifeproducts.com. And you've heard in this conversation the kind of a person in, in a in a uh, company that you're dealing with, um, American-based company, love God, love country, and I just want to I just want to invite you guys to to put your um, your trust. And your pocketbook, I guess, behind that and support this these guys, too, because they're making a huge difference out there. And, Don, if you can send us some links, uh, we can include the links to the mail, yes. to the company. Um, we can put those all in the description so guys can just click and go. Yes. Well, I'll definitely do that. So wrapping, you know, things up today, you know, God made everything there is. 
you know, he made the white-tailed deer. He made the, the great white shark. You know, I always tell you, you know, the black mama, the lion, the mountains, all these things. And he made us above all those things because he loves us. And I, it, we're, we're living in a time right now where, guys, this episode may be bigger than any other episode. For the first time, we've really opened up. We are the resistance. And I want to invite you in this episode, if you don't know God, to know that he loves you no matter, like I said, who you are, where you've been, or what you've done. He absolutely loves you. And he has a purpose, like Don was talking about, for your life. But he's saying, give me your life, and I'll direct it in ways like what Don just talked about that will blow you away. You know, there's a quote that says, you know, hard times make hard men. Hard men make easy times. Easy times make soft men. And soft men make hard times. You are needed right now because we have been going through a time where this country and and so many things we've seen have become soft. And we're seeing the enemy do whatever he wants to do right now. And like with no resistance, it's time for that to stop. Guys, we are the resistance. Your strength is needed and you have what it takes if you have the God of the universe in you. Don, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me, Brent. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. We'll see you next time, guys.